If you have a Bible, you may like to turn to Luke chapter 12, which is where I'll be reading from. Luke chapter 12. Interesting stuff. I was beginning to think I've got a clash here. But maybe not. A little boy wanted a hundred pounds badly and prayed for one week, but nothing happened. Then he decided to write God a letter requesting a hundred pounds. When the postal authorities received the letter addressed to God UK, they decided to send it to the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister was so impressed, touched and amused that he instructed his secretary to send the little boy a five-pound note. The Prime Minister thought this would appear to be a lot of money to a little boy. The boy was delighted with the five pounds and sat down to write a thank you note to God, which read, Dear God, thank you very much for sending the money. However, I noticed that for some reason you had to send it through 10 Downing Street, and as usual, they took most of it. (laughs) We're talking about money this morning. But it may not be such a clash as you think initially it might be. There's Elizabeth talking about worshipping. But there's no secular sacred divide in the Hebrew mind. All of life is an act of worship to God. So let me read from Luke chapter 12, verse 13. And someone in the crowd said to him, that's to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. So we're talking about money, the parable of the rich fool here. And there's two linked sayings. One comes in verse 15, which says this, Jesus says, A a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And in verse 21, he says as a a result of that, um, therefore do not store up things for yourself, but be rich towards God. Clearly Jesus thought that the man who asked him the question did think that life consisted in the abundance of possessions. And we mustn't forget that wherever Jesus was, there was always a crowd of people, not only his disciples, but other people too. He would always be speaking in the context of a community. And of course, there's us as well, listening as it were over their shoulder. So why do people think that life does consist in the abundance of possessions? Let me suggest to you three possible reasons for that. Here's the first. A deep insecurity about the future. Someone said that possessions are bonded to a deep, often irrational fear 
the fear of one day not having enough. Regardless of how much wealth is squirreled away, this gnawing fear presses frail humans to acquire more. There is never quite enough because the insecurity within never dies. And the inheritance for this man was of such importance to him that he was prepared to risk his family relationships in order to get it. Here's the second, a failure to recognize that all things belong to God. The psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And this declaration means that people are stewards, not owners of God's world and all that exists, responsible and accountable to God for the way we handle the material world. This truth is shown, for example, when God speaks to the Israelites in Leviticus 25. He says to them, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. It is, I think I've said it before and I'll say it again, England doesn't belong to the English. However much land you may own by deeds, it belongs to God. And the rich farmer in the parable doesn't even appreciate that life itself is a gift from God, not a right. Although Psalm 90 says that we may live for 70 or 80 years if we have strength, we have no right to those years. They are a gift from God which can be withdrawn at any moment. And a third reason is a misunderstood, misunderstanding of the nature of what it is to be a person. Only God can truly and fully satisfy the deepest longings of people who have been made in his image. And any suggestion that possessions ultimately can bring that satisfaction are sadly mistaken. The rich farmer foolishly believes that food and drink will satisfy fully. This is what he says. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. As if that will ultimately satisfy him. But Jesus says in John 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And in John 17 he says, explaining what this is, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And the outcome of this thinking is serious, because a deep fear, however irrational it may be, of the future leads to greed for more to squirrel even more away. We will never have enough. So Jesus says here in verse 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with possessions, as a careful reading of scripture will show. But Jesus highlights one of the dangers an abundance of possessions may bring, namely that of isolation. Having an abundance of possessions may isolate us from God because it gives us the impression that we can exist happily without any reference to God. 
We are masters of our own destiny. We are secure. But this little parable shows how fragile that thinking actually is. It also brings us isolation from our communities. When this parable was spoken for the first time, it was customary for people in those days to make decisions only after extensive discussion with family and friends. But we notice here that this man discusses things only with himself. I'll say to myself, he discusses things with himself. He hasn't got a family and friends with whom he discusses these matters. And even in the West, it's not unusual for people who have more than their neighbours to be more isolated than those who are of more modest means. Witness the erection of gates and fortress-like structures around the very richest properties. Isolation from communities. Jesus used parables as a way of viewing things differently and helping people to see where they stood on important issues so they know what needs to be changed. There's a clash of cultures here. In the parable, God's you fall to the rich man demonstrates that clash of cultures. The rich man thinks he's acted wisely, but in the parable, God calls him not a wise man, but a fool, because they're seeing the same thing from completely different perspectives. There are two ways to see how the world works, spoken simplistically. They are these, God's way and any other way. I lump them all together. God's way of how the world works is demonstrated by Jesus, who said when you put God first in all things, the world works as it should always have done, as it was originally intended. No wonder then that Jesus exhorts his disciples to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then the world begins to work in the way it should do. Paul, when he writes to Christians later on, will describe the centrality of Jesus in these terms. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Without Christ at the heart, things fall apart. Why do people's lives fall apart, basically? Because Christ is not at the centre. The writer of the book of Hebrews puts it like this. The Son, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So if he's not to be seen in any context, then things fall apart because he sustains them all by his powerful word. So issues of inheritance, property and finances here and elsewhere matter to God. And you may be interested to know that God, Jesus spoke more about money than he did about prayer. Now there's a thought. Because all of life matters to God. All of life is under the care of God and is within the interest of God. If you look at the law of the Old Testament, you find that it doesn't just cover what we might call spiritual stuff. It covers social relationships, work responsibilities, employment, agriculture, the way you handle your animals, and so on. Every aspect of life mattered to God. So when we're faced with this kind of parable, it's no good us getting uncomfortable and thinking God is encroaching on an area he has got no business talking about. How we handle money 
or any other aspect of life matters to God. In the days when an ice cream sundae cost much less, a ten-year-old boy entered an American hotel coffee shop and sat at a table. A waitress put a glass of water in front of him. How much is an ice cream sundae? he asked. Fifty cents, she replied. The little boy pulled his hand out of his pocket and studied the coins in it. Well, how much is a plain dish of ice cream, he inquired. By now more people were waiting for a table and the waitress was growing impatient. Thirty-five cents, she brusquely replied. So the little boy again counted his coins. I'll have a plain ice cream, please, he said. So the waitress bought the ice cream, put the bill on the table and walked away. The boy finished the ice cream, paid the cashier and left. And when the waitress came back, she was deeply moved, for there, placed neatly beside the empty dish, were 15 cents. You see, he couldn't have the Sunday because he had to have enough left to leave her a tip. The way we use money matters to God, even small amounts. Because we've been talking about worship today, and worship isn't just singing songs. It isn't just being in church on Sunday. It's how we live our whole lives. And how we use money is an act of worship too. The other way of viewing how the world works is where I am at the centre. And in the parable here, the rich man puts himself at the centre, if not of the universe, certainly of his universe. Listen to his conversation with himself. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. It's all about me and my. He gives no thought to any obligation he might have towards God or anyone else. The servants, for example, who would do all the work or the poor who are part of his community. Now a man has died uh, without a will and his two sons have inherited the, his property and that gives rise to this parable. And in those days, in that culture, it will be the, the inheritance could only be divided up with the agreement of the elder brother who would instigate such a proceeding. He would be the one who would decide how the property would be divided up. So the man in the crowd is clearly not the elder brother. He is the younger brother. And the elder brother has decided not so far to divide up the property. So rabbis in those days exercised a responsibility towards the community in deciding what the law had to say on particular issues of justice and righteousness. Well, the younger brother has already decided what is right and just, and he wants the visiting rabbi Jesus to confirm his view. My brother is in the wrong, I am in the right, and I want my rights. That is his attitude. And it's attitude that gives rise to the parable. This shows that a split has already occurred between the old and the younger brother, because presumably the younger brother has spoken to his older brother, who has refused so far to make any split in the inheritance. And the younger brother now is insisting on his rights. I want my rights. For him, money and his rights is more important than family relationship. But Jesus comes as a reconciler, not as someone who wants to further division. So he addresses the underlying attitude that lies behind this younger brother's question. So while at one level this is a legitimate 
issue of justice, in demanding his rights, the questioner has revealed what he really thinks is important in life. He thinks that satisfaction ultimately comes from possessions. They are more important than any relationship with his brother. So instead of coming to Jesus and asking for his help in resolving the matter between the two brothers so that they may be reconciled and justice served, he wants only what he perceives to be the right solution for himself. I want my rights. But he needs to be willing to submit his claim to God so that truth and love will prevail. Later on, Paul will have the same issue to look at in 1 Corinthians 6. Members of the church there were insisting on their rights to such a degree that they were taking each other to court. And Paul is appalled and says to them, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? He considers their lawsuits against one another to be proof they have been defeated already. So what are we going to say in the light of this? As we look at possessions, there's absolutely nothing intrinsically bad with possessions. I'm not getting at possessions or money per se. It is our attitude towards them that matters. Here's a thought. It all belongs to God. Everything you have and everything you are belongs to God. And we are just stewards accountable to him for how we use everything, including life itself. And if all belongs to God, and I am only a steward, the question arises, what rights do I have to any surpluses that might come my way, either through my own hard work or bountiful nature? And we should note here that the farmer does nothing for the bountiful crop. He just planted his seed as usual, and God gave the extraordinary increase. Whether that extra surplus comes through a shift in the market or gifts of others, what right do I have to it? Is a question worth discussing. Sharing his wealth with those in need never occurred to this rich farmer. Jesus wants us not to seek our own rights, but to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Only God can give us true security against an unknown future. Otherwise, fear will overwhelm us and make us draw more to ourselves. And trusting in God, in the same verse that Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he goes on to address our deep fear by reassuring us that these things, food, drink, clothes, all the necessary things of life, will be given to you as well. So we are not to worry because we have a Father who cares for us. And ultimately, the way we handle our possessions demonstrates either our faith in a Father God who loves us and promises to care for us, or our lack of faith. Jesus says, one cannot serve both God and mammon. The rich man in this parable says someone prudently takes the excess of the present and stores it for the future, rejoicing that his future will be free from financial worry. That worldly prudence qualifies him in Jesus' eyes as a fool 
he stored up for himself instead of giving to the poor and thereby becoming rich towards God. So heart follows treasure. Treasure in heaven means a heart fixed on heaven. Treasure on earth equally means a heart fixed on earth. Radical trust in God is the basis for the ability to give up that greed. Seek his kingdom and all these things will be yours as well. A lack of trust in the Father leads to the need to provide for my own security. But those who are convinced that their Heavenly Father will care for them are also those who are able to give freely. John Lang loved being outdoors, especially on the Lakeland Fells. But on this day in September 1909, when he was 30, he was not in the mood for walking. He sat alone on a grassy slope overlooking the Irish Sea with his head in his hands in despair. Ever since he had become head of the family building firm, he had wanted to start building things like power stations, reservoirs, instead of just building houses. But everything had gone wrong with the job they were now doing and the family firm might become bankrupt. Apart from the shame of failure, John knew that his parents were relying on him to keep them in their old age and that the men who worked for him would lose their jobs. But John Lang knew where to help find help when he was in trouble. He could always ask God. So he asked God simply to show him a way through his troubles and promised to make him a partner in his business. He wrote down a program for life like this. First, the centre of my life is to be God, as seen in Jesus Christ. And second, I'm going to enjoy life and help others to enjoy it too. He kept that piece of paper with him throughout his life and stuck to this program. Shortage of money had nearly been the downfall of his company, so he also decided how he would use his money from now on. For instance, if my income is £1,000, I will give away 200 live on 300 save 500 This might seem extreme, but John Lang exceeded this principle. Fifty years later, the firm of Lang was a leader in the construction industry, building motorways, power stations, airfields, houses, and even a cathedral. Yet when he died in 1978, at the age of 99, his personal possessions were worth £371. The man who had earned millions of pounds had given them all away. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, 
How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Father, we are so very grateful that the testimony of your word through the centuries and the testimony of your people since the word was written has been and remains that you are a God who cares. That we are to cast all our anxious thoughts on you because you care for us. You have loved us from the beginning and you love us now. There is no greater love that you could demonstrate than the love of Christ upon the cross. Having loved us and then, you love us now. And Father, this is an anxious world. And we want to be those who trust fully in you. So will you help us in this coming week through the strength of your spirit as we keep your word before us and look to Jesus to seek first in all things, not merely the use of our money, but in all things. Let us seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And will you also ensure that each day, Father, we receive what we need, our daily bread, that all these other things will be ours too, according to your promise. Let it be so, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.